0: This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts.
1: Where is there a man? that is free from sin in our hearts we think wicked thoughts with our mouths we speak wicked words with our bodies we do wicked deeds
2: every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today's message is brought to us by walter lowry it was preached on may 23rd in the year 1847 in the town of shanghai
0: Walter Lowry preaches a sermon on the punishment of hell. This is a basic evangelistic sermon, but what really impressed me about it was Lowry preached this in China after having been a missionary there, and this sermon was a little bit special to me because I had lived in China, i have been to Shanghai, just those kind of sermons, they always mean a lot to me because I can relate to them, but also he preached it in Chinese, and it's a very difficult language to learn, so being able to do that, especially in the 1800s before we had all the books and stuff, I was really, uh, really impressed with just that skill it must have taken to do that. Um, and this was after years of working in China. He preaches this sermon in Chinese, preaching the gospel to people, and it would be the only sermon he would ever get to preach in Chinese.
2: Yeah, Lowry, He was a missionary to China, but he was from America. He was born in Pennsylvania in the year 1819. His life was not a very long one. We occasionally have these these preachers on the show where they just don't have that much time here on Earth. He was born in 1819. He would die in 1847. That makes 28 years, which is kind of crazy to think about. That's about how old Troy and I are right now. I'm a
0: little bit older, so I actually outlived this guy, which is a little bit sad weird.
2: Most of what we know about him comes from memoirs that his father would collect of his writings and his life. When he was young, he was a good student, and he went to college at the age of 14. And I know we say like, oh, back in the day, you went to college earlier, but 14 is still pretty young to go to college, even for that day. He went to Jefferson College and was off to a rough start because after being there for only a month, he found out that his mother had passed away.
0: Yeah, not too long after that. Um, and he took that very hard. I read a little bit of his memoir, and there was he was pretty pretty beaten up by obviously his mother dying but um at this school he was at started to receive just this big revival uh many of the students going to school there during that time would make commitments to join the ministry they were um going to go on to be ministers missionaries stuff like that there was just and and uh his dad in the memoir kind of was talking about like that they stuck with those commitments this is what these people ended up doing um, and between the revival and the lives of all those students around him and him recovering from his mother's death, he really came to believe in Christ and the, knowing that that was a real thing and a calling on his life. Um, it wasn't long before that, that he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and he started taking classes there. And it, w- it was around this time he had this conversation that I think really uh, began his interest in missionary work overseas.
2: Yeah, there's this neat story where he is walking home from school one day and he passes by this school where african-americans are being educated and an older woman is sitting outside and they wave at each other and they start a short conversation he said in a letter to his dad that he was so impressed with her and called her imminent in the faith not three sentences into the conversation he said that she started talking about god and never changed course the thing that stuck out to him the most though was her talking about missions she said that she was very poor but she always gave to missions and she never felt like she lost a cent of it he felt really convicted by it because he didn't feel like he had that same heart for missions work that this lady that she was speaking to did she asked him to stop by again and he was excited to have another fellow believer to speak with and so their relationship and their conversations continued all throughout his time at princeton
0: uh, this conversation would help motivate and change his course to wanting to become a missionary to china there was a bible verse that also he just kind of really made his life verse It's isaiah 49:12. behold these will come from afar and lo those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Now, where exactly Sinem is located is not certain to this day. Something now that is in reference to a place called Syene below Egypt. This is how the ESV will translate it, and this is due to uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls using the phrase Syene instead. But for a long time, and especially in the 1800s, it was seen as China. The Qin Dynasty, which would have been active at the time that Isaiah wrote it, Latinized, gone through a little bit of translations, could become and easily sound like Sin, Chin, Sin, and Sinem, the land of the Qin, You can see how they could have gotten that idea. People of the Middle East did know about China, by the way. It wasn't completely, there were different time periods where these two uh, places very far from one another were aware of each other, even sometimes did a little trading. So it wouldn't be impossible for people from the Middle East to have known and even maybe written as far away as that remote place as the people of the Chin. So for Lowry, this was something he felt to literally, he wanted to fulfill literally. Uh, during the time when missions and missionary work to China was in full swing. And you gotta remember, if you've heard some of our earlier episodes, you know, David Livingston was supposed to be a missionary. And he was trying to go to China during the same time period. Um, and Hudson Taylor had, was prayed for and born during around the same time period. And But what's interesting, I thought was kind of funny, Livingston originally wanted to go to China, but he actually ended up in Africa. Uh, our guy Lowry, he originally, when he first heard of missions, he was like, yeah, I want to go to Africa, actually. And then he ends up going to China instead. Yeah,
2: God's sorting it all out. Yeah, he's just That's getting
0: the right people in the right place. Right, places.
2: the right people in the right place.
0: Part of what made
2: Lowry's story so different was that he was one of the first Presbyterians to really take the call to missions work in China seriously. When he got there to China, he he did pretty well. People really seemed to like him. They found him very intelligent. They found him very kind, especially to those that he worked alongside with. He was dedicated. He would sacrifice whatever needed to happen in order to get what needed to be done done. He was very selfless in that sense. One of his better-known works from that era was a book he wrote in 1846 talking about Christians and Jews in China, and it's kind of centered around a discussion from this verse in Isaiah that Troy mentioned. It was a book that was meant to to reach out to kids in America
0: and encourage them to come to China as well. Uh, He starts to learn the language, and, and for the longest time, he had to work through a translator, preach and encourage the people he knew um, and he knew that New English, which were mostly Americans and Europeans, uh, but he had a heart to see the gospel preached to those who were Chinese, and they spoke only Chinese. After years of practice, you know, he gets his shot in Shanghai. Even though he normally lived in nearby Ningbo, he was spending time in Shanghai and was given this opportunity to preach the message, and he, you know, he jumps on it. It's evangelistic and encouraging, and he's telling people to really think about the future and, and what's going to happen to them after they die. Uh, One of the reasons he was in Shanghai is because there was a meeting of missionaries that had come together. They wanted a new version of the Bible for Chinese believers to understand and to help in the evangelistic outreach. This meeting um, was originally planned. They said, we need to get a new Bible version going in 1843, but it took four years to get all the different leaders in a place where they could come to Shanghai and work on it in 1847. One of the men that was selected that was thought should be on the meeting committee was uh, Lowry. He, he has a good command of the Chinese language. He could do a good job. Uh, he preaches this in May. And a few months later, in August, when he's leaving Shanghai, he sets sail for Ningbo, but the boat that he's on gets attacked by pirates, and he is pushed overboard, and he's lost at sea. Uh, people were devastated. He had, he kind of became a hero, a little bit of a martyr there, but it was a shock to everyone, and his name became pretty famous, actually. A lot of people got to know him, especially in the Presbyterian mo- movement. Uh, his dad published his memoirs uh, with a collection of letters and some sermons he preached in China, and this was the one that had the Chinese language alongside it because, again, it was preached in Chinese. This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis, but also I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. The Bible version he was helping, by the way, did end up getting published in
2: 1856. Yeah, tragic and it's terrifying, the idea of, I don't know, just being pushed off a boat and being left to yeah, eventually drown.
0: We don't know if it was a quick thing where yeah. he just was thrown overboard and he immediately died or did he get stuck in the water for a long time. Right. We, we don't have that detail of the story. Yeah, wow.
2: This sermon that uh, we're about to listen to, it may come across as, as simple, but the work that went into this sermon took many years and I think that's something to keep in mind. It, it was a lot of groundwork being laid to eventually come to the point where he's the sermon to people that needed to hear it, many got saved reading this sermon over the years because of the story behind it. And even though it's not as deep as some of the sermons we have here on the show, it does remind us of simple facts of faith and the importance of those kinds of truths in the gospel.
1: Days we hear everybody talking about the pirates. Oh, they are so numerous. A large number of vessels at sea have already been captured by them. The merchant vessels didn't harm them or bother them, so that they had no excuse for seizing them. Besides, in doing so, they violate the laws of the Empire. And you will ask, what is to be done about this? Of course, the officers should go out and seize them and punish them. They should behead them or punish them by whipping. Everyone will say that they deserve to be punished. But suppose the officers are not able to take them. Well, this is a difficult matter. Here we see that if a man violates the imperial law, whether he commits murder or is guilty of theft or similar crimes, all men will say, this is a man destitute of principle and he should undoubtedly be seized and punished. When we hear men say this, we agree. We agree with them and say that this is perfectly correct. But when I wonder to myself, why is it that all men say that a man guilty of crime should be punished? I answer, it is because to act in this manner is in its very nature wicked. These things should not be done. If such crimes are committed, they ought to be punished. Again, to act so wickedly is to violate the imperial law, and to insult the emperor, and for this reason they also ought to be punished. Further, to do these things is to injure men, which is another reason why they ought to be punished. What I am saying, you know, is true. For this reason, I have a subject concerning which, my friends, I wish to address to you. In the beginning, the true God created man. He bestowed upon him many blessings— And commanded him earnestly and constantly to worship the true God. He commanded him also to honor father and mother, to love his neighbor as himself, not to kill, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to speak falsely, not to covet. He forbade him also to worship false gods and idols of clay in contempt of the true God. All these things the true God commanded men. And even more, God said, If you will not obey me and disregard my commandment, I will assuredly visit you with severe punishments. Now, I request you, my friends, to consider what you think men should do. You will say, Well, all should give reverence to this true God. All ought to obey him. Ah, but men... Have not done so. From our first parents down to this day, all men have already committed sin. Of all mankind, we see not one of them that is good. From childhood up, we all have sinned. Little children will show anger. They will quarrel and curse and lie and cheat. As they grow up, they become worse. Where is there a man that is free from sin? In our hearts, we think wicked thoughts. With our mouths, we speak wicked words. With our bodies, we do wicked deeds. Men deceive and cheat their fellow men. Our houses must have doors and windows that can be fastened with locks and bars. Men will lie and will cheat each other. And because of this, we daily hear them cursing and arguing with each other. Men will also be with wicked women commit crimes which cannot be sufficiently hated. From what has been said, we see that all men, small and great, young and old, all are sinners. There are some crimes which the officers recognize, but there are also many crimes of which officers do not notice. The officers do not know the heart. They can only see that which is external, so that there are many sins which they cannot bring under their jurisdiction. Moreover, there are some wicked men whose power and influence are so great that the officers wouldn't dare bring them to justice. But although the officers may not know that a man is guilty of a crime and so cannot punish him, there is the true God above. He knows it, and he will not fail to punish. Whatever thoughts we conceive in our hearts, he knows. So God sees if I think wicked thoughts, or harbor covetousness or anger, or if I do not revere the true God, all these are criminal and will surely be punished. We ought to know that God is greater than any earthly monarch, and his laws are more severe and of more importance than the imperial code. Therefore, if men sin against him and treat him with contempt, It is inevitable that ni ying sung yu ao pao. The evil must receive an evil payment, as you say. The punishment inflicted by God is of three kinds. The first is in this life. Some men, in consequence of crime, have their bodies suffer the attacks of disease. Those, for instance, who drink in intoxication injure the health of their bodies. Those who use opium, cause their bodies to waste away and become thin. The second kind is the death of the body. All men have sin and all men die. If we suppose a man who never committed any crime and was entirely sinless, he would never die. But there is no such man so that all men must die. Disease, pain, death, burial, corruption are the lot of all. But the third The third is the most severe and terrible, and it is to be greatly dreaded. Sickness and death, although bitter in the extreme, do not extend beyond the body. Within the body there remains the soul, the most precious part, never dying. The body dies, but the soul can never die and is not subject to corruption. It is immortal. Therefore, after the death of the body, the soul remains and is capable of suffering. What suffering? It is the torment of hell. After death there are but two places. One is hell, the abode of the wicked. This place of torment we should be terribly frightened of. All wicked men will dwell in it, and it is the abode of all devils. It is a place burning with fire, and the wrath of God, like a mighty wind, makes the fire more intense. He causes it to burn with increased Fierceness. The torment of hell is endless and unceasing, so that we should greatly fear it. The people of China say that in the seventh month all the spirits in hell are allowed to come out, and that we should at that time spread tables and prepare food for them to eat. All this is the doctrine of the Buddhist priests and is wholly lacking any proof. It deserves no attention and is unworthy of your belief. There are also some who say that after death men become dogs horses, cows, or, again, become men. This also is not true. It is the doctrine of Buddhists and lacks any proof. Do not believe it. What is after death we cannot know. God above alone can know. He has given us the holy book to teach us. This book says that after death there are two places. According to men's works in this life, they will be repaid. The good and Those who believe in Jesus will go to heaven. But the wicked, those who do not believe in Jesus, will inevitably be punished in hell. Therefore, Jesus commanded his disciples, saying, Go into all the world and teach men my doctrine. Those who hear and believe will obtain everlasting happiness. But those who will not believe must fall into hell and be tormented or literally receive bitterness. My friends, listen to my words. I do not wish to deceive you. I do not desire your money or that you should give me anything. My only object is to exhort you quickly to flee, that you may escape the wrath of the true God and the bitterness of hell. We are all sinners. and We all deserve punishment. How will we escape this terrible punishment? What way is there by which we may flee? I will tell you, there is but one way, one way. There is only one name on which we may trust for the salvation of the soul. The true God has sent his son to suffer in the place of men in order that he might save us sinners.
0: At the very beginning of this sermon, there's a sad irony because we know the end, right? Where he goes, Everybody wants to talk about the pirates and what's going on with the pirates these days. But you know, I want to talk about what happens after we die. That happens in May, and we know that he gets killed by the pirates in August, and it's just that interesting irony and that sad moment where he doesn't realize that, you know, the very thing he's talking about will end up being how he dies. and yet, I I think he had the right attitude. You know what? The the pirates, they don't matter. What really matters most is who we're going to see when we die. Have we reached out to Christ? Do we have forgiveness for our sins? Has he made that impact on our life? Or are we still thinking and hoping it'll be our works or something else? Have we even taken the time to consider it and think about it deeply? And and maybe some of you are listening to this episode and going, you know, I've I've been a Christian for a long time. Okay, I understand that, but we also have to remember that there are lots of people around us who don't know God and when we look at men like Lowry and see the 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 the, num- the links they went to to preach the gospel to the lost I think we should all be encouraged and and also all be a little convicted if we're really making those links and strides in our own life <laughs>
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Joel Berry. Joel Berry is a husband, a father of four, editor at the Babylon Bee, and the host of the Petty Prophets podcast. You can follow his work at thepettyprophet.com or on Twitter at, at @JoelBerry. We were also uh, on an interview on his show, right?
0: We were a, on an interview on his show. He's fantastic. He's got a great voice. Great interview.
2: One of the funnest interviews we've been on in a long time. It, yeah. was, it was a blast. So uh, check out his podcast, if only to hear us
0: on the show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We hope you enjoyed it. And that if you did enjoy it, we always ask. Uh, make sure that you're subscribed. We really encourage you. We have over 65 sermons in our catalog and we think it's a good idea just personally speaking if you haven't listened to them go back and check out some of those older ones some of those ones that maybe you haven't listened to before each episode has amazing church history inside of it and each episode has these sermons that are bringing the truth and a lot of new people have come in and been been coming into the show we we love to have you guys on but a lot of times people just listen to the latest episodes and we highly encourage going back and checking out some of those other sermons because we think you'll be edified by all the content This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This week on The Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism.
1: Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.